0: Hey, uh, I'm so delighted to introduce our guest speaker for today, Eugene Cho. I'm not kidding when I say this. He is an internationally known and traveled speaker. He goes all over the world uh, to not only speak, but be be an advocate for those who are on the margins. Um, He founded a church called the Quest Church out in Seattle. It it had become an immensely influential church, not only in that region, but across the country. Um, And... um, about seven months ago, he stepped down from that church in order to focus on another thing that he started called One Day's Wages. It is a, an organization dedicated to um, really you know, uh, helping out global poverty, and he does so in myriads of ways. He is the author of a book called Overrated, um, and that book will be available. I don't know if we have any left outside and um, I'm just so excited uh, about a year and a half ago I, I tried to get Eugene to come speak for uh, an, uh, something else that we do around here but that didn't work out but uh, recently he, you know, we got in touch with each other I, 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 I heard both of his messages uh, it's, I, I, I'm, I think that you're going to be delighted because it touches upon an area of the gospel uh, an area in which we need to be touched in and so I'm I'm delighted, I'm grateful, I'm excited. Hey, let's all welcome Pastor Eugene Cho. All
1: right, good good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. What a joy and privilege to join you. Uh, I thought I would spend maybe a couple minutes introducing just myself, a little bit of my story, so that you're not listening to An Absolute Stranger Um, I'm uh, turning 49 very soon, have two kids in college, uh, one who's a rising junior, praise God for Asian genes, Asians in the house, Asians, um, I know, you're you're cheering inside. Um, uh, My wife and I, we've been married for 22 years, Uh, my wife is a marriage and family therapist, pause for dramatic effect, it means that she wins every argument in our family, It's not even funny. And uh, so I was born in Seoul, immigrated to the United States when I was six years old, grew up in the city in San Francisco, have been living in Seattle for about 22 years as well. And one of the things that I'll share before we read scripture is that if you know uh, our children's names, you uh, have a good understanding of our theological convictions. So our children have both biblical names, but with pop culture references, And names are really important, like you were given a name for a specific reason. For some of you who are parents here, you named your children, uh, not whimsically, but with intent and with purpose. And so that's the case with our children. Our kids, biblical names with pop culture references, because we wanted them to love the word of God, to love Jesus, but to also engage the culture as light and salt. Does that make sense? So as an example, our eldest child, her name uh, is Jubilee. Now, you might not know this, but Jubilee comes from the Bible, from the book of Leviticus, where every 50 years, God erases all debt. Uh, It's a a, a sign of uh, justice and flourishing. And then, obviously, Jubilee is an X-Men character. Okay, wrong crowd. Um, One fan, one fan, all right? Uh, Two fans, all right? So our second child, uh, don't judge us too harshly. If you're a young adolescent, don't watch this movie unless your parents give you permission. Our second daughter, her name is Trinity. Now, Trinity, obviously, is the identity of God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, and it's from the film Matrix as well, okay? And then our son, his name is my favorite. His name is Jedi, Jedi. Now a lot of folks don't know that Jedi comes from the Bible and his full name is Jedidiah. And Jedidiah was Solomon's Hebrew name, which means the chosen one, chosen beloved. And a lot of folks that have read George Lucas's biography, they really believe he was deeply influenced by his Judeo-Christian background, which makes sense because a lot of the themes in Star Wars, I think parallel the stories of scripture. And so whenever I share this story with people, a lot of young men, and I see a lot of young men here, a lot of young men rush the stage afterwards and they say and they ask the question, Pastor Eugene, how did you convince your wife to name your son Jedi? (laughs) Teach us, oh Yoda, okay? Now, I hope it's because I'm wise and not short, but anyways, uh, let me share with you how the story went with my wife. It was very, very tumultuous because we fought about this name. When we found out we were having a son, I went to my wife. I was so excited because we have two daughters. And I said, hey, Minhee, I love you. That's not the trick. I, I love you. I said, Minhee, I would like to name our son Jedi. And she looked at me and she said, No. <laughs> Now, being a true Star Wars fan, you have to do this, you have to try. So I looked at my wife and I said, we will name our son Jedi. And she said, no. And so for, gosh, six, seven months, we fought about this. And finally, about eight months into her pregnancy, I finally, uh, I was so convicted, I went to my wife and I said, Minhee, I am so sorry. You're the mother of this child. You're the one carrying this baby in your body. You should choose her, his name. And she was so happy. So I then said, Here's your choice. <laughs> it's Jedi or Frodo. One of these two, you choose our son's name. Man, I'm so, I'm so grateful because had she chosen Frodo Cho? <laughs> that does not sound right to me. Hey, uh, as we dive into God's word, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you again so much for the privilege that it is to gather together as a church. We pray for anyone and everyone, for the one that's feeling alone or isolated or hurting. I pray that the Holy Spirit would minister to every single person, for the person that needs to wake up for the person that needs to be corrected and rebuked and encouraged, Holy Spirit, do your work. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen. Hey folks, so um, let's read scripture and then let me give you a little bit of a roadmap of how we'll spend our time together. If you have your Bibles with you, Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Listen now for God's word. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. So here's the roadmap of how we'll spend the next 40 or so minutes. I want to first give you a little bit of some context to the story that we just read, because when you read the scripture, it matters what you read, but it also matters that you try to learn about the larger context of that story. And even as you read the larger context of that story, you want to be able to read kind of the larger perspective, the totality of the scripture, how everything in a sense points to Jesus. Now, after that, I want to share with you five practical things that we can learn from these four friends that choose to partner together to assist this paralyzed man in bringing this person to Jesus. Five practical things that I pray would be helpful for you in your personal life, in your marriage, in your small group, in your church. But it really does matter that you're also thinking about what does this mean for us as the body of Christ, that we seek to be about the whole gospel together, that we get to embody the whole gospel together. And that's the title of our sermon, the whole gospel. But if I could add a word, it's the whole gospel together. Now, and lastly, I want to spend a few minutes at the end just sharing a little bit about this organization that my wife and I had the privilege of starting called One Day's Wages. So let's get into the text. It's the fifth chapter in the Gospel of Luke. You don't have to be a New Testament scholar to know that simply because it's the fifth chapter, it's early, fairly early in Jesus's public ministry. But have you noticed that it's fairly early, yet when word had begun to spread around the region that Jesus was going to be present at this home, Pharisees, teachers of the law, had chosen to gather at this home to scrutinize and listen to analyze Jesus Christ. Now, we'll get to it. Let's use the stage as a prop. I want you to imagine... This town, there's point A right here, and that's point B. In point A, we're introduced to Jesus, the disciples, Pharisees, teachers of the law. And in point B, we're introduced to a paralyzed person and to these four friends who choose to partner together. This is point B. We'll come back to point B soon. Now, let's talk about point A. When I study this text, it's painful. It's painful... Because this house is occupied by the who's who of the religious elite. The way that I define Pharisees for modern day Christians is that they were like spiritual directors of that time. They were like local church pastors of that time. They were the folks that were on the ground working with the Jewish believers of Yahweh. The Bible says that when word has spread, that Jesus was going to be at this home, Pharisees, teachers of the law, the who's, who, people that have been mentored and tutored by some of the most brilliant religious minds, people that have memorized parts of the Old Testament, Torah. People People that knew the codes, the laws, the regulations, they were all there. And part of what it meant to be a religious leader was to prepare people for the coming of someone named the Messiah, which is a word for the Messiah. And you see why this is so painful? Jesus, the Messiah, is in their midst, literally in this home, and they miss him. sounds really abrasive, but sometimes, at least for me as a pastor, I've learned that sometimes the most difficult people to lead to Jesus are actually Christians. People that are so enamored by maybe a vision of cultural Christianity, people that are enamored by more of religiosity, people that might know certain things, memorize certain things, and yet they become arrogant because after a while, if we're not careful, we become more about my ways, my thoughts, my styles, my agenda, my blank, that we can get so religious we miss Jesus. Now, I hope that this is a convicting word for all of us. When I read this story, my initial inclination is I want to empathize, to resonate with point B, these friends that choose to partner together. But if we're honest, we're probably more like point A. We're all religious people. We just got to make sure that when it's all said and done, that we remain humble and teachable and that we're being sensitive to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's point A, in point B right here, if that's the who's who, this is the who's not. People with no titles, no fancy uh, acronyms behind or after their names, we're not even given an introduction to their story or to anything of that matter, and why is this encouraging news for all of us here? This is encouraging news because this is one of another of many stories in the scriptures that convey that God is able to use anyone and everyone for his purpose, glory, and honor. And that's so encouraging. I'm not trying to diminish your degrees, your titles, your work, your expertise, but I want you to know that God's ability to use you is actually not contingent on your ability. He can use those abilities But God's not up in heaven going, oh, man, man, if this son, if this daughter doesn't get a college degree, I can't use this person. God's ability to use you is ultimately about God's power and not you. It's about your willingness to say yes. It's about your willingness to make yourself available to God. And so when you look at the scriptures, the Bible, with the exception of Jesus Christ, the only perfect man, the Bible only has stories of imperfect, broken, fallen, jacked up men, women, and children. And God uses them for his glory and honor. He uses the foolish things of the world. Just to give you an example, when you read the Bible, Adam and Eve lied, concealed, and accused, God does not abandon them. Abraham and Sarah were old, which meant biblically. Back then in their culture, they were no longer useful to society. They had serious marriage issues. Noah was a drunk. Jacob was insecure. Joseph was abused, sold into slavery by his own brothers. Can you imagine the emotional trauma? Moses had a stuttering and confidence problem. Esther was an orphan. Elijah struggled with mental health and depression. Gideon was poor, which meant during that cultural context, people believed he was cursed by God. Rahab was a prostitute. David had a list too long for the sermon. Jonah was rebellious, unwilling to listen to God's instructions, hated, vilified, demonized the Ninevites. John the Baptist, let's be honest, was just weird. Actually, friends tell me that he was the original OG hipster. Martha was a type A workaholic, a type three enneagram with a 2-4 hybrid wing. I have no idea what I just said. The Samaritan woman had numerous failed relationships, ostracized in her own community. Thomas had doubts after doubts. Matthew was a tax collector who worked for the other political party, the villainous Roman Empire. Paul was a Pharisee, a persecutor of Christians. Timothy was timid. My point to you right now is if you are breathing and alive, add your name to this list. God is not yet done with you. Man, I pray there's at least one Pentecostal at your church. (laughs) It's okay to make noise. Be encouraged. So this is a story of how God is able to use anyone and everyone. So what's the five things that we can learn from these four friends? Well, here's the first thing is this if you're taking mental notes or writing down notes, I would say is that they had faith in Jesus. They had faith in Jesus. Now, what do I mean by faith in Jesus? It's not recorded here in the scriptures. I believe, as I study this text, I'm convinced that these four friends had an encounter with Jesus. In some form, fashion, or another. Maybe it was a teaching. Maybe it was a miracle. Maybe it was a meal. Maybe it was a conversation. But I believe they had an encounter with Jesus, an encounter with the gospel. And here's the thing. The power of the gospel is that it begins to cause transformation in our lives. It caused shifts in our brains, in our mind, in our heart, in our soul. It's not just salvation internal, but it's such a way that it begins to change the very way that we see and desire to live our lives. And so here are these friends. They have an encounter with Jesus. And before we get into the story, I believe that they had this conviction that not only does this person matter, the paralyzed person, they believe that Jesus is worth bringing people to. In other words, remember several weeks ago when you're celebrating Resurrection Easter Sunday? It's so important for you to realize that as we were all hyped up and excited about Resurrection Sunday, saints hear this good news, the tomb is still empty. Jesus is Lord. He is who he says he is. He will accomplish what he says he will accomplish. In other words, even before we get into the how we do the whole gospel, we need to know the why. The why. And the why is because Jesus is Lord. For a lot of Christians today, we talk a lot about, let's do the work of the kingdom of God. Let's pursue the kingdom of God. All beautiful, biblical rhetoric and truth. But we have to remember that in the kingdom of God, there is still a king. And his name is Jesus. He's our why. Now, in some ways, I would say that this captures this verbiage of the whole gospel. Now, what do I mean by the whole gospel? The whole gospel declares that for God so loved the world, he so loved Orange County, he so loved Brea, he so loved you that while we were still living in sin and in rebellion, he sends us his son, Jesus the Christ. Why? Why? Because the Lord, our God, so loves us that Jesus saves. He saves sinners like you and me, wretched sinners like you and me. As Christians in a fast-changing, pluralistic, post-Christian world, I pray that you and I would never relinquish the truth of that message that Jesus saves. If you've never heard that and you're sitting here, maybe you're a visitor or maybe you're coming back to church after many, many, many years, I pray that you would hear these words, Jesus loves you, that he died for you and that he desires for you to repent and to receive him as your Lord and savior. That's something we can never relinquish. My concern though in the church particularly in the Western church, in a very consumption, consumer-minded church, is that we think this is the totality of the gospel. The Great Commission is the totality of the gospel. The Great Commission matters, but so does the Great Commandment. The Great Commission and the Great Commandment are not in opposition to one another. I'll give you an example. Sometimes people ask what I think is a very dangerous question. They'll say, Pastor Eugene, what's more important, evangelism or justice? And I think to myself, what a nonsensical question. The gospel constitutes all, both. The Great Commission, Great Commandment, it matters to the heart of God. And so the temptation in our world, in my opinion is that if we're simply saying Jesus saves, we think to ourselves, man, as long as I get into heaven, I'm good. As long as I'm good, we're good. And it becomes about me, myself, and I, my quiet time, my family, my marriage, my children, my parents, my church, living hope, we're all good. And I would say that there's a temptation to become insular when Jesus says, for God so loved the world. He loves the nations. He loves this nation. He loves OC, he loves not just general population, he particularly has an inclination for the lost, the marginalized, the last, the least, the oppressed, the marginalized, the poor, the forgotten in our world. He cares about refugees and immigrants. He cares about migrant kids that are stuck and trapped in centers. He cares about the unborn and the list goes on and on. Jesus cares not just about your flourishing. He cares about the flourishing of our larger world as well. That's what we mean by the whole gospel. May you be convicted by this message of the whole gospel. It's important that we don't forget the why. I'll give you another example or story. Because sometimes even good things, if we forget the why, can become idolatrous. When I was a sophomore in high school some years ago, I was coming home during Christmas break and a friend of mine dropped me off at home. And as I got off the car and as I was walking up our stairs to my parents' house, I was surprised to see my parents at the door to greet me. And they said, Eugena Ozoa, welcome home. And I was like, Oh, what a surprise. And then my father says, uh, your mom and I, we have a present for you for Christmas. Now, in our family, if I'm honest with you, none of us got excited about presents. Because every present has something to do with studying. So like as an elementary school kid, like we got SAT books. I'm, not, I'm just serious. PSAT books, GRB books, MCAT books, LSAT books, thesauruses, and dictionaries. I remember as a sixth grader having to copy the World Book Encyclopedia by hand. Okay. Crazy. I got to the letter L and ripped out lots of pages when my parents weren't watching. You want me in your Trivia Pursuit team, okay? I know so much about aardvark, it's very scary, okay? And so I, I, I'm up, I'm, it, at this place, my, my father says, we have a present for you, follow me downstairs. Bizarre. I follow my dad downstairs, and I'm really confused. Like, did he prepare a a study hall in the dungeons of our house. Like, what's going on? And I get to the basement of our house, and out of nowhere, my dad, as much as he wants to, use your imagination of an old school key, he takes our car keys. And he says, (laughs) We bought you a car. I was so excited. And he turns to the garage, and in the garage was a 1972 Volkswagen Bug convertible in orange. (laughs) But beggars can't be choosers. Man, I love those old school Volkswagen Bugs. And without even blinking, I still remember grabbing those car keys as quickly as I could. I ran to the garage, got into it, put the top down. If you've ever driven an old school Volkswagen, the reverse is in the opposite. I put it in reverse. Back then, I had long, beautiful, flowing black hair. True story. And I just drove around San Francisco for hours and hours and hours. And as I was slowly making my way back, I really sensed the Holy Spirit convict my heart with this question. Hear this question. The Holy Spirit says, Eugene, did you thank your father? Did you thank your father? Now, why do I say that? Because sometimes you and I, we can get so enamored, so obsessed by the gifts that God gives us that we forget the giver of gifts. We can be so obsessed by the created order that we forget there's a creator. In Seattle, if you've ever been there, we have a majestic, majestic mountain that shows up about 30% of the time to the clouds and rain called Mount Rainier. It is so stunning. I have met neighbors who worship that mountain. And as politely and respectfully as I can tell them, I try to urge them, why would you worship this mountain when you can worship the God who created this mountain? That's what I mean by idolatry. You and I... Your education, your school is a gift. Be grateful, but when you worship your education, that's idolatry. Your job is a gift. When you worship your job, it becomes idolatry. Your spouse, be careful right now, okay? Don't look at your spouse, just look straight ahead. You don't worship your spouse. I'm looking at this couple right here. (laughs) Your children are gifts from God, but you don't worship your children. They're gifts, and so it's important for us, even as we're having this conversation, I'm particularly beginning to be concerned among young people. It's such a good thing that we care about mercy, about justice, about compassion, but we don't worship these things. They're an outgrowth of the gospel at work in our life. We do justice because we worship Jesus. And as we worship Jesus, it's an outpouring of transformation in our life. Here's the first thing is that they had faith in Jesus. It doesn't mean that every word has to be Jesus language. It doesn't mean that every conversation has to be Jesus language. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's important that you are in your schools, in your works, in your environments, in your neighborhoods, but don't forget the why. Here's the second thing that we can learn from our friends. The second thing is that they had a spirit of compassion. They cared. They cared. There are a lot of painful, broken things in your cities, in Southern California, in L.A., in the United States and in the larger world. In our world today, this is stunning. Depending on what sources you read, 32 to 40 million human beings are caught in some form of human slavery or trafficking. I'm gonna share a story that I didn't have the time to share in the other services. Some of the work that we do with One Day's Wages is related to human trafficking. And a few years ago, I had to let my wife know that we were heading to Thailand to do some work with our partners there, asked for permission from her along with the folks that I was traveling with that we were doing research and work in brothels in Thailand. I mean, it was more intense than I could have imagined. We went to a particular go-go bar, a brothel, and it actually is very similar to this stage right here, very similar height. And at this particular stage, there were about 80 to 100 Thai girls and women. Half of them were topless, half of them were in bikinis. And what I remember is that every single one of them had a number right next to them. And one of the things that we were there for, working with our organization, is that we had kind of undercover cameras in our bags, and we were trying to have conversations with girls or women that we thought were underage. And I still remember, after a while, you go in, you have to buy a drink just to make sure that you're undercover, and then eventually you ask for the host by making a sign like this. And the hostess comes to you. And then I'll never forget this, number 17. And eventually, girl, woman, number 17, they're all up on stage just like robots making moves like this. And then number 17 eventually comes and sits right next to you. And then you have a conversation. She's trying to sell her body, and you're trying to get information to see, are you kidnapped? Are you trapped? Are you... 32 to 40 million human beings are caught in various forms of slavery. In our world today, there are approximately... Fourteen to 15,000 children under the age of five that die every single day because of the complexities of hunger and poverty. About 660 million people don't have access to clean water. And the list goes on and on. And so you might be thinking right now, with so much pain in this world, how do we wrap our mind around so much brokenness in the world? It's not a complete answer, but I would submit to you, man, you got to begin with your heart. you got to care, which is so interesting because our culture is really about how do you flee away from things that make you uncomfortable or that cause pain. And this is so interesting because I would say to you that as followers of Jesus Christ, two of the most prevalent prayers that we should be praying is, God, would you give my heart joy for the things that give you joy? And would you break my heart for the things that break your heart? Now, I hope that makes sense. The gospel does a couple things in our lives. One of the things that it does, is that it affirms us, it, it encourages us, it comforts us, but the gospel also disrupts us. It challenges us, it convicts us, but if we're honest, we're more enamored by a gospel that comforts us. When I read the scriptures and there's things that are really affirming and encouraging and warm and fuzzy, man, Always, my first thought is, oh, this is a word for me. I get so encouraged. And then when I read the scriptures and there are things that are really convicting and challenging, it's amazing, my mind, my first question is, who is this for? Is this for my wife? Like, who is this for? The reason why the gospel comforts and challenges, why? Because we desperately need both in our life. But if you and I are somehow doctoring the gospel, manipulating the gospel in such a way that it's really just about comfort, then I fear that what we're doing is that we are trying to make God in our image. So how do you build compassion in our lives? Well, one of the ways that we do that is that You have to know and believe and live this truth that every single human being is created in the image of God. Every single human being. I don't know your stories, but I know without a shadow of a doubt, you are created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. Every single person. Including those that don't look like you, think like you, feel like you, worship like you, or even vote like you. Every single person. And one of the ways that we have to remind ourselves is that we've got to take a moment to pause in our busy culture and world to look at people in the eyes. Now, I hope that makes sense. If you want to see someone, you look at them. If you want to ignore someone, you look away. At at my church, if I were to say, hey, who here wants to volunteer for spring cleaning? It's amazing. People just look away. (laughs) Like in my family, we're we're having a family meal, a delicious family, galbi meal with our children, and my wife and I says, hey, kids, who here wants to do dishes? Like all three of them look away. And I'm like, We still see you, fools. You just ate our food. Who's going to do dishes? See, when you look at the Gospels, I mean, Jesus has, obviously, an impressive resume. His LinkedIn profile would be amazing, But the thing about Jesus that most compels me, it fascinates me, it just so convicts me is that no matter how busy or hurried as Jesus was, he stops and looks at people in the eyes. The Samaritan woman at the well, he sits and begins to have a conversation, sees this woman, stays in the village for two days. The leper who chooses to come back, Jesus looks at that leper with such humanity. In this story, when the roof is opened up, Jesus first looked at the friends, then looked at this paralyzed person and says, friend, such beauty and humanity. One of my favorite stories in the gospels is the story of this bleeding woman She's bleeding internally, which means that she's considered unclean. She's marginalized by families and her community in desperation. She wants to touch Jesus because in her mind, she thinks, if only I touch Jesus, I will be healed. She's working, worming, pushing through the crowd in order to get to Jesus. She touches Jesus, praise God, she's healed. And then she asks a ridiculous question what's the question that she asks who touched me you see why that's ridiculous you think jesus didn't know you think jesus was like ah 누구야 <laughs> <laughs> who touched me you understand when jesus asks questions it's never for his benefit Does that make sense? He asks questions because in this case, he wanted every single person to know. He wanted especially the men to know in a culture of patriarchy where women were often devalued. He wanted them to know, but he especially wanted this woman to know that in the kingdom of God, the king stops and says, I see. gospel is beautiful. Jesus is beautiful. Have compassion. Care for the things that God cares about. Here's the third thing that we can learn. They had faith in Jesus. They had compassion. And now they have to engage in a spirit of collaboration. They have to partner together. They have to work together. Now, most of you, all of you have no idea who I am, but I happen to be an extreme introvert. So I love doing things alone. I love hiking alone, I love fishing alone. Two years ago when I had my last sabbatical, my wife and kids, they were so generous, they let me go away for 30 days. And I fished alone for 30 days in the woods. Okay? Uh, I love eating alone. I love going to movies alone, which is a little awkward when my wife says, Let's go watch a movie together. I'm like, Bye. (laughs) But one of the things that I've learned is that you cannot be a follower of Jesus alone. You cannot be the church alone. You cannot be on mission alone. You cannot pursue the kingdom of God alone. We have to do it together, which is why it's such good news that as you're sitting here right now, it's good news that around you are men, women, and children of different ages, of different backgrounds, that are here not just to consume a good sermon or what I prayed would be a good sermon but that you would desire to be the body of Christ on mission for the glory of God. That's what it means to be the church about the whole gospel. Now, I want you to think about if you've ever had a moment in your life where you've had to carry an adult human being alone on your back from point B to point A. I'm not sure if you've ever had that experience, but I'm telling you, it's hard maybe even impossible our family we are basketball hoop loving family okay so jesus is lord and then ball is life in our family okay <laughs> And so and one of my daughters played high school basketball, was the first starting Asian point guard in her school in his history. My son also plays basketball. In the first service, I admit to you, I confess to you, I lied. I told him I was 5'8". I'm just 5'6 and a half. <laughs> but my son, maybe it's because he eats like a horse. He's 6'1". foot one. He's tall plays basketball for his school. And so he and I, we were playing basketball at a playground about a mile away from our home, and both of us are pretty competitive. And as we're competitive, I play point guard in high school. I'm like just going at it with him, talking trash, and then I pull a wicked double crossover move on my son. If you don't know what it is, it's just really impressive. It's so a double crossover move <laughs> on my son, and I got him. He buckles. Like he rolls his ankles and he buckles. And I'm like, yeah, man, who's your daddy now? And so we're going at it. And then I realize, oh my goodness, he's actually hurt. So, So like Darth Vader, I'm like, I'm your father. And so I get Jedi to come on my back. So Jedi's on my back and I'll say, Jedi, I got you. Let me carry you home. So I've got Jedi on my back and after a few steps, I turn around and I say, get off. (laughs) I couldn't do it. My heart was there, I love my son. My heart was there, I just physically couldn't do it. Physically, you can't do it alone emotionally, you cannot do it alone. Spiritually, you cannot do it alone. Gift-wise, you cannot do it alone. We need the body of Christ. We need not just this church, but we need every church all across the world to know that when it's all said and done, it's not about our churches, our logos, our branding, our platform. It is about the kingdom of God. It's that kind of collaboration that we need. It's not in the Bible, but there is a cultural phrase, a cultural verbiage that I think is so powerful. It comes from East Africa, most likely from Tanzania, and it goes like this. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Make a decision today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But I guarantee you, you're not going to be about the marathon. But if you want to go far, don't just come and go. Don't just consume and go. Don't just eat and go. Don't just listen and go. But pray, how can I be about the whole gospel together? With this church. Here's the fourth thing that we can learn from this and it's a spirit of perseverance. And and I'm actually gonna end with four things. Four things and then I'm gonna close with a couple stories. The fourth thing that we can learn here is that they had a spirit of perseverance. Now what do I mean by a spirit of perseverance? Anytime there's a new work from point B to point A, Point A to point B, whatever it might be, when there's a new work, when you feel like God's calling you to a new thing, when you're starting high school, when you're starting college, when you're starting a new job, when you're starting a new relationship, when you're starting a new marriage, when you start a new membership quest, in the beginning, there's always energy and excitement. Always. But after a while, we realize life happens. Attrition happens, contrition happens, skeptics and cynics and skeptics and haters and whatever it might be, it begins to come and it begins to wear on us. And after a while, it amazes me. It concerns me about our younger generation. You might be brilliant, you might be creative, but we're too quick to quit. If God has called you to something, persevere, press on. Don't quit. God's not yet done. I'll give you an example. Remember the time when you like committed to exercise? Remember the first week when you were doing two a days? And now you just exercise in your sleep. Remember that time when you began that Commitment to say, I'm going to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelations. I'm convinced every Christian has read Genesis. (laughs) But how many of you have read Leviticus? Because it's hard. It's challenging. I'm imagining these friends here. They have faith in Jesus. They have compassion and empathy. They have collaboration and partnership. Four friends, each holding a corner of this mat. There is so much energy and synergy. They're singing oceans for the thousandth time together. Things are moving along, but after a while, it's hard. Newsflash, ministry is hard. Church is hard. Leadership is hard. Discipleship is hard. Being human is hard. Being faithful is hard. Don't quit. If you believe God has called you to something, right now, some of you, one of you, one couple, if you feel like, man, we're about to call it quits, I just feel in the Holy Spirit to tell you as gently and as pastorally, God's not yet done. Don't quit. Don't quit. Good to get help, good to get counseling, good to get advocates to come along. Don't quit. When I look at my parents' generation, if I can just critique my parents' generation because I know they won't listen to this video because <laughs> they don't know what the internet is. <laughs> but when I look at my parents, they just had zero creativity, zero No creative bone in their bodies. But when I think about their spirit of tenacity and perseverance, my parents were born in what is now called North Korea, who fled south because of communism and war and because of persecution, because my great-grandparents were believers, My father, who just told me last year for the very first time, he tells me when I was six years old, I lived in a refugee camp separated from family. Why didn't you ever tell me? It's too painful. My parents, who immigrated to this country in 1977, knowing maybe a handful of words of English, all mispronounced, including thank you. (laughs) who woke up every single morning at 6 a.m. to get their kids ready and to open Royal Pine Market, the first Korean-American grocery store in San Francisco, (laughs) who ate every single meal in that grocery store, Smell bad, who closed the shop at 11 p.m. and got home around midnight, and then they did it again the next morning for years after years after years after years. Yeah, my parents, far from perfect. I've had to get some counseling in my own life, but I look at them, and I go, I need that perseverance in my life. I need that tenacity and commitment. About 19 years ago, my wife and I, we had left a church in the suburbs because we felt God was calling us to plant an urban multi-ethnic church in the city about the whole gospel. Had our plans, our Excel sheet, and I tell you, nothing worked out. It was very painful and very difficult. I was 30 years old, We had a child, Minhee was pregnant with our second child. And during this time, I realized that, um, while this church is not going to get started anytime soon. And I'm unemployed, and I need to get a job to help our family. Long story short, I realized very quickly that a pastor with a Masters of Divinity degree is useless to larger society. And nobody would hire me. Starbucks, McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell, Toys R Us, all said no. And I think they were kind of scared looking at my resume. So during this time, we ended up on food stamps. It wasn't part of the plan, and it was humbling. Uh, We met people that we probably would never have met during this time. And then finally, after months of looking, I finally landed a job. And I want to say this carefully because I'm not saying that this job is beneath me. It was challenging because it was not part of my imagination. I finally got a job working as the janitor at a Barnes & Noble store in Seattle. Now, mind you, it became the cleanest Barnes & Noble store, okay? And so... During this time, I just started this work, my mother flies up from San Francisco to Seattle because she wanted to come and encourage us. So she flies up, and the next morning or so, I had forgotten that my mother is one of those Korean mothers or just mothers that love to wake up early in the morning to pray, read the Bible, and sing. And it was around thirty in the morning, I was going downstairs from my bedroom, ready to go to work. My mother sees me and she says, Oh, you do not know Where are you going? I was so embarrassed. I said, ah. Yeah, 저일 Hallelujah. We've been praying for you. And I don't know what it is about our parents' generation, especially mothers who wake up early, and some of you have these mothers Well, they are re scripture, and they're like singing Korean hymns, and they're always clapping off rhythm. I don't get it. Like, why? It's two, four, two, four. So she's singing, she's like, I hope she doesn't watch this, please. <laughs> and so she sees me and she goes, where are you going? I got a job. And of course, she asks the question, 어떤 il?" What kind of work? I'm a janitor. And I'll never forget this, my mother who's sitting at the dining table praying and singing and clapping off beat, she stops, she stands up, and then she begins to walk towards me. Now, if you were to ever visit Quest Church, now I've left Quest with my wife, my kids and my parents still go there. If you ever come to Quest Church, you'll see my mother, you'll notice her from the get-go. She walks like this because of bad knees, bad hips, bad back from lots of different things. And she's walking towards me, and I have no idea what she's doing. Do I defend myself? Like, what, what? I go, ah, I, Because some of you have parents that are strong, strict disciplinarians. So I thought she was going to scold me, spank me. And I'll never forget, my mother walks towards me, and then she walks past me. I'm confused. She goes to the closet. She opens the closet, grabs her winter coat. She puts her coat on. She turns around, looks at me right in the eyes, and says, "Yujina, 같이 가자. 엄마가 도와줄게 which means, Eugene, let's go together. Mom will help you. I don't know about you, but I need that in my heart. I need that kind of spirit. Let's go together. Let's be about the whole gospel together. Let's be about the glory of God together. And you know how the story goes, right? They get on the roof, and I love how that moment where Jesus, before he even acknowledges the paralytic, he first sees the friends. Why? Because he's saying, your life matters. Your decisions matter. Your faith matters. Your integrity matters. Your collaboration matters. Your partnership matters. Your perseverance matters. And I'm here to tell you this morning, Your lives matter. Some years ago, and I want to just close with these two stories here. Some years ago, my wife and I, or just myself and a group of pastors, we had a chance to visit a country called Burma or Myanmar. And I don't know if you know much about Burma or Myanmar, but in the 80s and 90s, there was some serious evil stuff going on. The genocide that was going on during that time according to UN officials, was as bad as the situation in Darfur. But a lot of folks didn't know what was going on. So we had a chance to visit a makeshift village in a jungle that was fleeing away from the military government. This village didn't even have a name. They were simply village number 81, constantly moving. 50% of them were Christians. And the government came out and said, we want to destroy them in part because they're Christians. And so we go into this village, and I was stunned because I visited a classroom, 15 desks and chairs, makeshift, temporary classroom, greenish chalkboard that's overused and scarred in the background. For first to fifth graders, I walk in, and the first thing that I notice is a poster that's taped on the chalkboard. It's one of the most graphic, most violent things i've ever seen Now i don't see any kids here so i'm just going to go all in with the story this poster was a collage of photos of men women and children with mutilated body parts and blood oozing out of them it was horrific now i'm not a teacher per se but you know that is way inappropriate for a classroom no matter what context My host, sensing I was disturbed, goes, Reverend Cho, Reverend Cho, come closer, come closer, and it's broken English. And as I come closer with reservation, he gets on his knees, and he points not to the body parts. He points to the bottom row, and there are these greenish, grayish, metallic contraptions, and he says, these landmines. We must teach children avoid landmines. And that week, I had a chance to meet some of the survivors. And I had a chance to meet this particular Burmese family. This particular man is one of the leaders of their village, this family right here. And I asked this elder, I said, knowing that I had just visited a classroom, I said, sir, what's challenging in your village? And this elder, knowing that I had visited a school, he says, paying teachers' salaries hard. So I had to ask. How much are their salaries? He sticks out four fingers, and he says, $40 US. My response, first question, per day. He laughs. He no. And so I said, oh, I'm so sorry. $40 per week. He laughs again. And I'm, mind is blown. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Did you mean $40 per month? His whole facial complexion changes. I think he's really irritated by me. And he says, no. teacher salaries, $40 per year. And I was stunned. And I shared that not to make you feel guilty about your stuff or about your jobs or your paycheck, but I really think part of kingdom work is truth-telling is to convey some of the disparity that exists in our world, including in our own society, in our own nation. I took this experience and came home, and I shared it with my wife and our kids. This is a picture of our family back about 10 years ago. We looked this good all the time. <laughs> so my wife and I committed to pray about this, and this is where I need a little bit of your grace, because we've been criticized by some We share this not because we're trying to show off or to sound boastful or holier than thou, but our philosophy and leadership is that we're never going to ask someone to do something we're not willing to do ourselves. We believe transparency, especially in a cynical world, matters. So as we prayed, the Holy Spirit convicts us to give up a year's wages. Now, we're a one-income family back then. And I'll just give you some numbers. Full transparency, about 10 years ago, my full-time salary as a pastor was $68,000 a year. I don't know if that's a lot or a little, but that's our salary as a family. And the thing is, we just don't have $68,000 lying around for three years. We choose to save, simplify, and sell off things that we didn't need. But during this time, I learned All of you guys probably know that Jeff Bezos is the richest person in the world, Bill Gates is number two, but I learned that in the context of the larger world, my salary puts me among the richest people in the world. I am the 52nd million, 40,162nd richest person in the world. You better respect me. (laughs) Now, obviously you're laughing because you don't respect me. That puts me in the top 0.86 percentile of wealth in the world. My one day's wages is $268, which represents 0.4% of my annual salary. But when you learn how much it can impact those around the world. During this time, God convicts us to... Uh, start an organization called One Day's Wages, where we try to inspire people around the world to give one day's wages at least once a year or to become a monthly donor, $5, $10, $20, $40, whatever it might be. And then people have done some crazy things to partner with us. They've donated their birthdays. We've had church partners. We've had people run marathons. We had a kid bicycle across the country to raise money for our clean water fund. Jeremy Lin, the NBA basketball player, donates one game salary every single year to one day's wages. It's a lot of money. We had a mother of two children convicted by one of our funds for a uh, famine crisis fund in East Africa, and she wanted to raise awareness and also raise money by shaving her head. I thought that was really weird. And she raises About $12,000. And I look around right now and I see a lot of women with beautiful hair. (laughs) May you be convicted. (laughs) I'm like picking on her, I'm sorry. Over the last nine years, it's been so humbling. God has been so gracious. We've had about 20,000 people from around the world from over 40 plus countries partner with us and we've raised over 7.58 million dollars. Build hospitals, education, clinics, water wells and the list goes on and here's the thing that I love so much about the story is when my father was young, he would tell me that even though he wasn't a Christian, he kept running into Christians who were there when they were in need. When they were hungry, there were Christians there. It makes sense that compassion and world vision started in Korea. About a year ago, I was in Iraq, Lebanon, and Jordan working in refugee camps. Really hard stories. And in there, I actually met a handful of Muslims who became Christians. And I was so fascinated by their testimony, I said, Why did you become a Christian? Because there's a cost in that cultural context. And here's what they said. When we were trying to leave war and conflict and cross borders, we met Christians on the other side waiting for us. When we were trying to get into boats, we met Christians who had life jackets and food for us. When we got off the boat, we kept meeting more Christians who had a bag of groceries for us and resources to connections. We became Christians because they kept showing up. That's the power of the whole gospel. Now, when we get to the story, and I'll close with this. I'm so sorry for going late, but you can't fire me. So uh, (laughs) when I get to the story, I think about how awkward this story would have been if the four friends got together and said, hey, let's talk about this. Hey, man, let's, let's form a committee about this. Hey, let's, let's philosophize and theologize about this. Let's sing a worship song with sloppy wet kisses about this. Let's pray about this. All of these things are good. Sometimes I think to myself, let's pray about it. It's like code Christian words for polite nose. You can do all of those things and still do nothing and still do nothing. I love exercise. No, I don't. I don't love exercise. I love the idea of exercise. They're two very different things. Friends, I had a gym membership for over 10 years. 10 years. And during those 10 years, I went to the gym once. Don't judge me. She's like, too late. And that one time I went was to give them my credit card information. I didn't even exercise. At our home, we have a treadmill that's covered by coats and jackets. I subscribe to health magazines that mysteriously download from the cloud to my iPad. We have lots of apparatuses at our home. Ab busters, thigh busters, butt busters, all these busters. And here's the thing. I could actually teach you about exercise. I could preach to you about exercise. I know it'll be weird. I could sing about exercise to you. Watch this. I just did 20 (laughs) push-ups. You see my point? This is why James says what? Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And may you be convicted by the Holy Spirit, encouraged, implored by the Holy Spirit to believe that Jesus saves and Jesus is at work in this world, ushering in God's kingdom. Will you be about the great commission and the great commandment? Would you be about the whole gospel? God, thank you again so much for your good news, the good, beautiful, glorious, whole gospel news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.